Get the right loan the first time with Bendigo Mortgage Brokers. We do all the shopping around for you and our home loan service is free. Contact Glenn McMahon at Bendigo Mortgage Brokers in View Street, Bendigo. That's Glenn McMahon at Bendigo Mortgage Brokers in View Street, Bendigo. The Standard Hotel in Fitzroy. Hard to find, easy to love. Go to thestandardhotel.com.au for details. Welcome to the Country Footy Show on PD Footy, episode 25. Season 2017, my name is Paul Daffy. This is the last episode for the 2017 season. Uh, normally at this time of year, I speak to Adam McNichol. Adam's an old journalist mate uh, who wrote about country footy for the Sunday Age for many years. So I spoke to him because he had a you know, statewide perspective covering the entire state. So it was a good way to finish off the season. Adam's this, these days he uh, works mainly at the Geelong Footy Club in the media operations there and he's busy building his, uh, his publishing empire, which is very impressive indeed. So he, he, he does keep an eye on Manangatang, his home club, very strongly and country footy in general. Uh, Adam says he's not quite a cross-country footy like he, he would have been in previous years. So I've gone, taken a different approach with my final interview this year in that uh, it reflects my season, in that um, I've written the history of the VCFL. It's called Behind the Goals, uh, with thanks to Adam, actually, who's published it through his company, Ten Bag Press, and AFL Victoria, thanks to uh, CEO Stephen Reaper for supporting that. Um, well, for coming up with the money and for supporting it all the way through. It took three years to complete before it finally came out in May. It's been well received since then. But in reflecting... Um, my interest in country footy history and the fact that that book's come out. Uh, I've done my final interview this week with a, a student who's writing his PhD thesis on the history of country footy. In this case, uh, the history of footy in the southwest area of Victoria, in the period from 1930 to 1940. So I speak of Nick Marshall. Nick's from Kalora. Uh, these days he lives in Melbourne, where he studies at Victoria University. And... Um, I just thought it was a good way to round out the season because although we do speak about specifically uh, footy in that Hamden League area, um, the, the, the topics we cover um, I mean, are applicable to all of Victorian country footy. And uh, there's also a contemporary perspective as well in that Nick, like many uh, teenage country footballers, moved to Melbourne to study. And since then he's played in Melbourne, but he also go, follows footy very closely at home. does go home to see Kalora Nurat playing the Warrnambool District League sometimes, and uh, follows footy very closely. So it's a contemporary view of country footy as well. And that a lot of students live in Melbourne and travel home, or country footballers live in Melbourne and travel home to play, and so we speak about that as well. Um, now, before I go on, I actually want to thank my business partners for the season. Uh, Glenn McMahon from Bendigo Mortgage Brokers, been a wonderful ally for the three years of this project. Murray Bird from interchange.com.au, uh, the app that's revolutionising interchange, the interchange bench in footy. I'm actually editing Murray's History of Queensland Football, albeit very slowly. Murray keeps prodding me to get it done, but it's uh, it is getting done, Muzz. It just I'm a busy man. It just takes a long time. You're a busy man as well. We're all busy, uh, but it will be done. And also Paul O'Brien from the Standard Hotel. So Paul kicked 100 goals for both Uroa, his home club, and Daniliquin, and coached both clubs. A very prominent country footballer, and now a wonderful publican in the heart of Fitzroy, or the back streets of Fitzroy. Uh, I've made the standard my local. I love going there, talking footy and other things. Talk anything in the standard. 
There's certainly uh, no shortage of good conversationalists in the front bar there. So um, thanks to Paul for his support this year and ongoing support. Paul will uh, support me with my SEN program over the summer, which will be about um, sports stars from a country town. We'll be picking a country town each week. Right, some uh, other housekeeping. Uh, my PD footy lunch will be on next Friday, October 13, at the Standard Hotel. I encourage anyone who wants to come to drop me an email at pauldaffy27 at gmail.com. My guest speaker will be Dale Waitman. Dale has a country footy background, which is only appropriate given it's a PD footy lunch from the Country Footy Show. Uh, Dale grew up in Mildura, played one senior game for Mildura Imperials at centre-half forward, which is uh, strange given that he's uh, not the tallest centre-half forward to ever play, but then he went down, of course, and made his name at Richmond, and he's still involved at the club as the club relationship manager, so Dale will have plenty to say about the Tigers flag this year, go Tigers, and uh, also about his background. The Waitman family is still very involved in footy up in the uh, Mildura area, so I look forward to that. If anyone wants to come, please get in touch. Uh, $60 a head for two courses and entertainment, and you will, you will be entertained. Um, before I go, I'd also just like to mention some of the interviews this year. Uh, the top-ranging, the top each week I've spoken to a country footy identity, generally a player. In fact, in all but, all but one case, it was a player. I spoke to Danny Forrest, the treasurer from Donald, one week about their caravan park venture, their rather creative fundraising idea in Donald. But my top-rating episode this year, for those who are interested in these things, was uh, with Tom Isma from the Moolamoon Footy Club. Uh, very funny. Almost everyone who's ever played in the Golden Rivers League seems to have listened to that one, about Tom's boat being commandeered by his old teammates at the Ultima Footy Club. Uh, that gained 1,100 downloads, which was almost double the next best. So thank, thank you to everyone at Swan Hill who, uh, who supported that one. Uh, Dan Nicholson, the Port Ferry um, playing, no, he's not coach yet, but uh, the Port Ferry star. Chris Atkins, these days plays at Sunshine, but has mainly played at Kybram, uh, his hometown club. And Luke Dyer from Luck, uh, Lindeno in East Gippsland. They all got, all got, have all got almost 600 downloads. And the fifth best was Sean Monaghan, the playing coach at the Southern Mallee Giants in the Horsham District League. They went through the season undefeated, actually, for the second year in a row this year. Second year of the club's existence, actually, since the merger of Beulah and, Ho- and Hopeton, that has got almost 500 downloads. Now these these figures change, and that I still keep getting some downloads for the previous year's episode in which I interviewed Danny Butcher from Mafra and Willem Drew from Croyt after the grand final victories of those two clubs. So that's got about 800 listens and, and still grows. So perhaps fueled this year by the fact that both of those clubs. Played in the grand final again. Mafra lost to Leon Gatha, but Coroit defeated Port Ferry. So uh, people keep going back to those. That's the thing about the internet and these things that they uh, they do have a long tail. They're there for people to listen at their leisure. Thanks to all those who supported me with Perdue Footy this year and in the previous two years as well. Uh, I've, I've loved doing the country footy show, speaking to the country footy identities. I plan to be doing it... Uh, I'm not sure in what format next year or what the contents of the show will be, but uh, I'm pretty sure I'll be doing something along the lines of what I've been doing this year. Uh, I encourage you to come back next year, but in the meantime, please enjoy me rounding out the season with Nick Marshall, who's writing his thesis, PhD thesis, on the history of country footy from 1930 to 40 in the southwest area of Victoria. 
Interchanger, the revolutionary app that's been built specifically for Australian football. For $100 per club, you can take all the guesswork out of managing your players' time on the ground. The Hawthorne and Bulldogs footy departments have used Interchanger in the past four grand finals. Contact Murray Bird via interchanger.com.au. That's Murray Bird via interchanger.com.au. The Standard Hotel in Fitzroy. Hard to find, easy to love. Go to thestandardhotel.com.au for details. And welcome back to the Country Footy Show with thanks for the last time to the Standard Hotel, to Bendigo Mortgage Brokers and to Interchanger, so to Paul O'Brien, Glenn McMahon and Murray Bird. Uh, my guest interviewee on this last show is Nick Marshall. Welcome, Nick. Hey, Paul, thanks for having me. No problems. Now, uh, Nick, as I mentioned in the in the introduction, this is uh, I normally do a, a roundup at this time of year, but I've gone a little bit different, and I want to go to speak about country footy in general terms uh, through you in, in, in terms of history. Yeah. Uh, and you have clearly have uh, current links with country footy as well, so we can cover both bases there in a, in a general chat. Although it will be based largely on the. Uh, Southwest region of Victoria, and more specifically the Handman Footy League. But anyway, tell this, tell the listeners first of all a little bit about yourself, as a, in footy terms and in what you're doing with your studies. Yeah, for sure. So, um, grew up uh, in Southwest Victoria, down in uh, Kalora, just between Terang and Morlek, so uh, dairy, dairy country. Okay. Um, and yeah, went to school in Ballarat. And then came to Union at VU. Um, I did undergrad here at VU, just in sports science. Did an honours in uh, sport history, following uh, sort of the state of origin, um, Aussie rules state of origin history. All right. And yeah. now, I've just, now I've just moved on to my uh, PhD. So I'm a uh, year and a half into my PhD, and my sort of uh, working working title, uh, working topic is. Uh, um, the social history of uh, Australian rules football in Southwest Victoria during the uh, 1930s to 40s sort of period. Right up my alley. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Now we, we could go several several different things there. So first of all, Kalora. I mean, that's. I mean, I, I think of it as a dairy town. Is is that about right? Or yeah, not even? Yeah, a t- is it even much. a town? It's sort of a district, really, isn't it? It's yeah, more of a farming district, I'd, I'd say. So there's yeah, fair bit going on there, but yeah, mainly dairy, a little bit of uh, sheep. Uh, I grew up on a sheep farm initially, but uh, uh, now we just lease out the land to a lot of dairy farmers. Okay, I always refer to the uh, my fa- the favourite title of a footy book is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is the history of the Mount Nurak Footy League, which used to take in court. Yeah, yep. Uh, the league was wound up a few years ago, and the history of the competition was called Playing Footy and Milk and Cows, which I thought encompassed... Uh, Seem to encompass most of life in that part of the world. So you're yeah, at, that's it, yeah. you're sort of a bit out of Colac, a bit out of Tarang, as you said. So you're probably about two and a half hours from Melbourne. All right. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Now you, the state of origin sounds fascinating as well. Actually, what tell tell us a little bit about that honours thesis you did with uh, the state of origin. Yeah, so I was at, yeah, again at, at Vic Uni under the supervision of uh, Rob Hess and uh, Matthew Cogman. And yeah, I was just interested in uh, doing a little uh, research into the sort of rise and fall of the state of origin in Australian rules football. So I sort of took it upon myself to sort of track the 
progress of it through um, the newspaper coverage that it received mm-hmm. from sort of newspapers of the from Melbourne and newspapers in Western Australia and South Australia and a bit in Tasmania, and just sort of tracked its um, price and then its gradual demise. Well, how how old are you, Nick? Can I ask? Uh, so I'm 25, 25 this year. So you were born in what, 1982? Around then? 90, yeah, 92, yep. Sorry, no, I can't add up. 92. <laughs> well, all right. Yeah. So the state of origin went from 1977 to 1999. I think that was Brent right. Harvey was best on ground. I was brother and I went to that game actually in the wet at the MCG. So what, what was one your interest? I mean, state of origin was absolutely enormous in the early 80s, mid 80s. Well, from yeah. the, from its inception really, and, and for the next 10 years until the beginning of the national comp in 87. What took yep. your, your what took your interest as a as a student in the um you know what what would that have been around two thousand eleven and twelve or two thousand yeah yeah so later. so yeah I did the did the thesis in twenty fifteen but yeah I think my initial interest in it was the fact that NRL has this great state of origin competition that's been going on since nineteen eighty and they obviously um, borrowed the idea from AFL at the time or VFL at the time completely yep. and I was just sort of a bit curious at the fact that, um, yeah, the AFL had sort of started this idea and then hadn't sort of gone, gone on with it. So I was wondering why the AFL, why the NRL was so successful and the AFL had sort of fallen away. So I was interested to track it, track it back. And I always thought it was an interesting concept to play against state versus state and that sort of idea. So it was interesting to track its, yeah, well, rise and the I'm, professionalism that encouraged on it. Well, can you... Can you say? Can you just tell us why? What, what were the findings of your thesis? Have you got a, think, a nutshell summary sort of thing? I think the major the major factor was definitely the fact that the national competition in the AFL um, began taking precedence over the um, interstate competition. So, obviously, the introduction of um, the Brisbane Bears and the West Coast Eagles in '87, especially for Western Australia, the West Coast Eagles essentially became their state side playing against. Victorian side each weekend mm-hmm. and then um, definitely with um, Adelaide being introduced in 90, 1990 they became South Australia's representative team in the VFL and as, they, as the VFL became the AFL it sort of that professionalism and that national competition sort of took over from the from so, the state of origin and became so, so, so in, in a sense is, is, is the strength of the state of origin comp in rugby league due to the fact that the competition is basically confined to those two states. I mean, all the players yeah, are from all, all the players are from either either state, really, aren't they? Yeah, pretty, yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the other thing, the other factor working against the AFL state of origin was that um, there were so many states that they had to sort of cater for, yeah. and um, whereas NRL had two state system was really used to organise three three game series, and the AFL had to sort of coordinate this. Um, Two, two, one match series or two match series over consecutive years where teams would play um, the best team so the best team would play so Victoria would play South Australia one year and yeah. the winner of that team would play either the Allies or the West Australia the following year yeah Allies did, didn't that, quite that, really. Allies did not, not not work at all I mean, even for no, the players right. playing for it I've got to, I've right. got to ring Dar Waitman tomorrow about this lunch I'm holding next week for PD footy and yeah. uh, he was a titan in those State of origin games in the mid '80s, when Richmond started to decline, uh, pe- yep. pe- I mean, people's memories of Dale Waitman as a great player would be the fact that he roved to Simon Madden in um, State of Origin games. He was just, he was just mighty. 
So it, it actually yeah, did enhance right. the reputations of a lot of players in that era. But as you say, absolutely. wound down pretty easily in the in 1987. Now, before we um, before we get on to uh, your findings on the Hampton League and just and country footy down that way, it's, it's not, not only the Hampton yeah. League. Um, what about your footy background as a player? Uh, growing up, did you play for Kalura and who do you play for now? So playing football, uh, grew up playing for Terang Mortlake in the Hampton Footy League. Mm-hmm. So I played all my junior football from under-14s or under-12s all the way through until under-18s. Yep. And then, yeah, came to Melbourne and, yeah, couldn't really, wasn't going to sort of do the travel every weekend back home. So I ended up playing, decided to play with the uh, Victoria Reds in the amateurs. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've played with them for the last six years. Just so Fitzroy, yeah. just Fitzroy those days, mate. No, no, no Reds. <laughs> that's uh, right. Yeah, Fitzroy. Yeah, uh, incorporating Fitzroy Reds, whatever it is. That's yeah, incorpor- Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. Fitzroy Footy Club incorporating yeah. Fitzroy Reds. Uh, yeah. Well, we have a link there as well. My my two sons play for uh, Fitzroy Juniors. And, um, yeah. I've sort of been around Fitzroy Footy Club for twenty years in one form or another. Um, how do you find how do you find playing there at Brunswick Street compared to playing or just not compared to anything? How do you find playing there? How do you enjoy your footy? And and then how do you find compared to your country footy background? Yeah, so definitely uh, Fitzroy's uh, really lucky in the fact that they've got a really strong sort of community um, based club. They're a community based club. They're not a sort of old boys club, and they've obviously um, maintained a lot of the support from old Fitzroy supporters. So the community and the supporters there are really uh, friendly and uh, lovely and you get that same sort of um, community vibe that you would at a um, country football club, which I thought I was sort of was going to lose a little bit when I came to the city, but yep. fortunately that sort of atmosphere is definitely um, retained at Fitzroy. Yep. Um, and then in comparing it to country football, I think the, the major difference is probably the fact that the amateur clubs aren't affiliated with netball teams. Yes. So... The, um, it does still sort of have that sort of uh, uh, boy club sort of feel to it, but I think that's starting to change a little bit now because a lot of the um, amateur clubs are starting to affiliate with uh, the women's football teams now. So I noticed that uh, at Fitzroy that they're developing a really um, yeah, balanced culture and they've obviously got um, great president and secretary and uh, Joan Eddy and uh, Sharon Tawney who run the show there and they've got that really good balance now, so that's a really, really important thing for them. Yep. It's uh, I mean, so list, our listeners would mainly be country footy people, so they might not realise the amateurs and the seven divisions of senior footy, mm. plus a couple of more social divisions. But anyway, the, uh, Fitzroy played in B, Premier B, which is the second division this year, and they've been there for almost 10 years, basically, but they've been relegated, finished ninth yeah. and in the MO yeah, system. Yeah. It's two up, two down. So if you finish ninth out of the 10 teams, you go down. So they're going out of C grade next year. But in, in in terms of a, a suburban club battling against the old boys teams, old boys teams meaning um, old Melbourne, you know, blokes from Melbourne Grammar and uh, old Scotch and old Brighton and my old team, St Bernard's, St Bernard's old old boys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a different it's a different setup. So amateurs is mainly yeah, old definitely. boys teams plus suburban teams and a few university teams. And no, not many, not many women at all. I think I think some country footy people are surprised at the strength of following in a lot of suburban and amateur clubs. Um, yeah, for sure. Probably don't get the uh, crowds per capita 
and it doesn't mean quite as much. You can pretty like get, no. you can live in Fitzroy and not know that there's a footy team really. But um, that's exactly right. Yeah. But uh, whereas, whereas you, you, you can live in Kalura or anywhere near Kalura without knowing there's a footy team in your local no, area in the not. country. So that, that's the major difference. But um, yes, Fitzroy sure. president is a woman. Uh, the secretary is a woman. Yep. Uh, Joan and. Yep. And Sharon, as you mentioned, so yeah, very strong women's presence there. Um, and just the footy itself, uh, what I mentioned, they got relegated. How was your own year? Where, where do you play, actually, and, and how was your own year? I uh, played played, all, played Reggie's all this year. Um, mm-hmm. Couldn't quite crack it, crack the season this year, but um, played a few senior, few senior seasons uh, last couple of years. But um, yeah, didn't have my best year this year, unfortunately. No, why was that? Studying too hard. Uh, what's that? Studying too hard or something. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much, and yeah, a few injuries here and there. Just couldn't quite uh, get the get the continuity of games here, I suppose. Okay. Um, and, and why do you play for Fitzroy? Is it because you live live in Fitzroy, and and why have have you considered going back and each weekend and playing for Clura, even though it's two and a half hours away? A lot of people do travel to play country footy, as you know. Yeah, that's that's right. So um, I think initially my interest in Fitzroy was the fact that I grew up being a Fitzroy supporter. So did you? Um, really? Yeah, yeah, I was probably. Four years old when I went to the last uh, Fitzroy game at uh, the MCG against Richmond. That's right. Yeah. I sort of ninety six. Vividly, yeah. vividly remember that. Yep, that's right. You vivid, and, um, you're four. You were four years old and you vividly remember it. Vividly remember, yeah, sitting on the uh, sitting on the fence line. Um, what do you remember as a four? What, what do you remember as a four year old? I, I, I vividly remember two players, a Richmond and a Fitzroy player, coming close to the boundary, um, like a contest over the boundary line. But that's about it. Do you, no, the, do you remember the players? No, not not like if I look back now, I can sort of remember them, but certainly not not from the day. Yeah, so I think dad dad recalls. I went with dad, and then dad recalls heading onto the ground after the match and um, sort of saying goodbye to Fitzroy and all that sort of stuff. But I can't yeah, can't remember yeah. that at all. I have vivid memories of David Clark, the Geelong ruck rover. He was in nineteen seventy two, yep. loping up and down the wing at the MCG. When Geelong was eleventh, and they bet Richmond are on top, and I just thought the world, the, the whole world order, was just put out of whack. You can't understand that. I was six at the time, so no. four—that's an amazing yeah, memory yeah. for four. So do you bet for Fitzroy because your father did, or because well, Fitzroy was in the zoning days, the Hamden area. Fitzroy was the yeah, was, was Hamden, the, Hamden zoning region. So I'm not sure. Yeah, Dad, I'm pretty sure Dad followed Fitzroy pretty avidly. I think he um, trained a little bit with them in his under nineteen days, but nothing more than that. Nothing. He had a bit of. Bit of a soft spot for Fitzroy. Yep. So I followed them after that. And, um, so yeah, when I came to Melbourne, um, the 19s for Fitzroy had just been elevated to the Premier Premier Division of 19s. So I thought it would be a pretty good challenge to try and um, see if I could play there. And, yeah, managed to get a few games there. And, yeah, just loved the, loved the, loved the atmosphere and loved the sort of community spirit. And, yeah, stuck in there and, yeah, played for the next five years or so. Okay. How would, yeah, you, des- always, how would you describe Fitzroy as a club? It's actually I won't preempt what you're going to say. How, how would you describe it? Um, uh, certainly, certainly community based. I think they they're always really strong about their community and um, yeah, supporting supporting the people around them. And I think the people and the club uh, members are all they all just love the club and certainly very warm. Win or lose, you always come off cheered, and they always cheer you off, and certainly that sort of sport is always is always welcome. And it's they don't take themselves too seriously, I don't think, but they're always um, but they're still uh, ambitious and trying to 
get up to the upper grades and pushing themselves. So, hmm. yeah, it's a good balance. A mate of mine, <laughs> he made a comeback at 35 after we returned home from London, and he uh, he always rem- reminisces fondly about, you know, you're waiting in line at, during the drills and someone will say, oh, did you see such and such a documentary on SBS last night? He thought that was very amusing, waiting for a drill at a footy club and they're talking about SBS documentaries or did you see this band or, you know, there's a very... Yeah. He, he found it... He, he enjoyed the inner city sensibility, I suppose, that footy yeah, and I art do mix. Have, they've definitely got that sort of... Um, we've got that sort of... Uh, well, everyone, every team we play sort of has that idea that we're all sort of hipsters and a bit hippie and all wearing beards and... Yeah, basket weavers, etc. Yes, I know the, I know the Yeah, that's it. So I, think, uh, I think, yeah, on the inner sanctum, on the inner sanctum it's a bit, um, yeah, pretty casual and just a lot, of, a lot of boys having a lot of fun with each other. Yeah, got a mate who lives in Bash. Ash, you've got a mate who lives in Ashburton. He's always on at you about hipsters and <laughs> whatever at yeah, the Fitzroy it. Footy Club. Uh, yeah. When you live in Ashburton, though, everyone's a hipster, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so, d- have you considered going home to play country footy? And, and do yeah, do so you any of your mates do that? Um, there's a few few boys I know at Kalora that definitely have been travelling back this year. I think Ben Fraser and um, Jason Maloney and a lot and likes of them have been travelling back this year. Um, and certainly I've had a bit of um, my brother-in-law coached the Kalora team this year, oh, yeah. and my whole family is basically involved in the club. My uh, other brother-in-law is coaches the under-14s, and my sister's heavily involved in the netball, and and my yeah folks get down to the games pretty regularly. Okay. So there's always that sort of family uh, family pool to bring me home and I think yeah potentially someday in the future I think they'd be keen to have me back and yeah I'd probably come and have a run but we'll see what's your brother-in-law's name who's the coach we should give him a plug because they actually uh, won the, they actually won the flag didn't they yeah yeah so he's been he's been there for three years Danny Danny Finn Danny Finn yeah. um he's been there three years and they've uh yeah it's been gradually rebuilding and recruiting and yeah managed to pull it up this year so I think yeah reward for effort so did you go home for the when Kalora Kalora Nurat they are now they combine with their mm. arch rivals play in the Warrnambool yeah. District League after the demise of the old what, what was it the Hatesbury Mount Nurat League it was wasn't it about ten years yeah, ago Hatesbury now fifteen years yep. ago and uh, you mean a club from a little district I mean playing against clubs you know with access to all the uh, kids in Warrnambool most of the other clubs are based in Warrnambool. They ended up winning yeah, the flag. I mean, is that a is that a is that a big achievement or no big deal? I mean, um, um, they, they expect to do well. I think they've always had a pretty. Certainly, their recent history has been fairly strong. They won. They had a series of, I think, three three premierships on the trot in the sort of early two thousand uh, or mid two thousands, mm-hmm. and then they've never dropped too far from the finals, if if at all. So they've always been fairly strong. And I think they're. Probably their greatest strength is the fact that they are sort of a family and community-based club as well. They've got um, they have a lot of Malonies and a lot of Canards and a lot of people with the same last name, which helps with uh, retention, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think I think Danny was able to sit, certainly had a bit of influence in drawing a few people from Waterloo as well. So okay, so yeah. sounds like you're, are you from a big family yourself? Sounds like there's a fair mob of you. Uh, no, so we're we're. We're just the, the three kids of us, but um, yeah, sort of got relatives all throughout the district, I suppose. And did you go home for the the grand final? I think it was played at the Reed Oval in Warrnambool. Did you go home for the grand final? Yeah, managed to get home for the granny, which was good. There was, 
I think the under fourteens, under seventeens, and the seniors were all playing in the footy finals, and then they had a uh, a reserve netball team in the finals in the granny as well. So managed mm. to get home and watch all those, which was good. Gee, but it's actually amazing. Too. How many people would be in that Kalora Nurat district that you've got all those junior turns in the finals as well in the grand final actually? Um, across the across Kalora and Nurat, I'm not sure what the census says or anything, but I'd say there'd be probably 500 to a thousand in between that sort of ranks. Probably not even that. Uh, and Warrnambool's one of the few. In fact, it's the only one I can think of. It, it's effectively it runs like an amateur footy club, and that the boys from a Catholic college in Warrnambool play for old collegians. So, um, yeah, yeah. In fact, it's the only old school team in country footy that at yeah, least, yeah, at least yeah. I'm aware of. So it's quite unique, actually. It's yeah. set, up, set up like an amateur club. Well, a mate of mine, Andrew Starkey, I went down and actually watched the grand final last year when they, yeah. were, un- when they were undefeated and then lost the grand final to Naranda, who had finished fifth, scraped into fifth before the finals. It was actually one of the more remarkable days in at a country footy match I've ever been to. It's just like watching a car yeah, crash. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. The old yeah. and people were stunned. Um, yeah. what was, uh, did you enjoy going back what the, and the reaction to the victory? Did it rekindle old feelings? Or how did you actually feel on, on the day of the grand final? Yeah, so it was definitely, definitely a lot of relief for Danny. I think he's been putting a fair bit of, fair bit of work. And obviously, for my sister, his, his wife, I think he was, she was fairly relieved as well. So I was um, <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty happy and... Um, yeah, just everyone gets gets excited when there's um, community success and all that sort of stuff. So definitely, I felt a bit envious of the premiership and that sort of stuff. So I think that's another well, thing that sort of draws you home. When you go home, do people say, "Come on, mate, when are you coming home?" Or that's you... it. Yeah. So, so I managed to get to a few games throughout the year, and um, I'm pretty sure there'd be always at least one or two comments saying, "Oh, yeah, you'll be here next year, aren't you, Nick?" And I'll I sort of say, "Oh, yeah, we'll see how we go. We'll see how we go." <laughs> So you give a non-committal answer? I mean, imagine that's the same. Yeah, for that's it. So it must be the same yeah. for a lot of blokes who go home to see their old teams. And actually, used to happen yeah. to me when I went to St Burns games. Uh, when are you coming home? People don't quite understand, do they? They wish you well, but they don't quite understand unless you're playing uh, where yeah. you came from. All right. Well, just um, I said we we're going to speak in the, about your studies and your thesis. And can you outline broadly? I mean, the history of footy over that during the 1930s in the era. It's sort of a, a broad subject, really. Is, is, is there anything you're trying to find any particular or just a, a general narrative of footy for the decade? Or what, what, what is what is your aim and, and what have you found? Yeah, yeah. So I think um, the main sort of aim of the project is to sort of place football in the context of a rural community and try and understand or try and explore the sort of meaning that football brought to the towns and what role football played in the towns um, during this period. Um, obviously, nowadays there's that sort of um, anecdotal comment that um, football clubs are the lifeblood of the community and stuff. Yep. But I wanted to sort of um, explore basically what um, explore that sort of uh, idea and where that sort of idea originated originally, and then uh, explore. Yeah, what football clubs meant to the community, and if they played a really significant role, or if the football clubs were more reliant on the community to survive, or um, that sort of back and forth relationship. Well, how do you study that? How do you? I mean, a lot of listeners wouldn't know. Like, how do you, how do you begin to study that? What do you, where do you look? So my so my primary source for this sort of material is um, through the local newspapers, yep. and a lot of the expression that the newspapers use 
is a great way to um, dig into that sort of that sort of cultural and social meaning um, that yeah football brings to the community. All right. And yeah, so the exploring these habits is the primary source, and then obviously a lot of the um, archival material. So um, you're probably aware of like football minutes and um, meetings of um, community clubs and yeah. AGMs and uh, balance sheets, even like finances and stuff. So that's always um, a rich source of material as well. So when you say newspapers, do you go to the State Library or do you go to the Warrnambool Library or, or someone's got a bunch of papers in a back room at Kalura or what, what do you actually do? Yeah, so I do a uh, mix, of, mix of all of the above. So spent a fair bit of time at the State Library this year um, trawling through the microfilm. So they've got the newspapers on uh, microfilm that you can reel through and in Melbourne, um, yep. you can take scans. Yeah, in Melbourne, yep. And then obviously um, the local historical societies from, the, from around the district are always a um, really helpful and always really uh, willing to help out in any sort of research. So they so I've always so I've touched base with a few of those and they give me access to a few of their archival material. Mm-hmm. And then the last protocol is the the clubs and um, leagues themselves. So have you rung every Haven't... club and every league in the between Colac and Warrnambool, say? Or, or, or... Uh, no, that's all, that's that's the next next thing on my sort of agenda to do is to, yeah touch base and yeah make make a few more contacts that way. Okay. Yeah, now, actually, what defines Southwest Victoria for the purposes of your thesis? Uh, so, predominantly, the area that I'm studying is the almost the Hampton district of the VCFL. If that makes sense. So, yep. obviously, there's um, twelve districts or whatever throughout the VCFL, yes. um, and the Hampton district covered sort of between Waterbury, uh, sorry, just beyond Waterbury, through to uh, just before Colac, almost. Before so college. clubs and yeah. yeah, I think yeah. So clubs and leagues within that sort of region are sort of the primary um, focus, and then yeah, anything that pops up even a little bit beyond those boundaries is okay as well. Actually, the um, yeah, I mean, some listeners might not, or many listeners might not realise that um, yeah, you know, I, I I wrote the history of the VCFL, which came out this year, and I think. It was originally called the the Karangamai District, I think. Yeah, that's right, yep. And it went from, say, Port, ah. Port Ferry through to 12 miles past Camperdown. I don't know, uh, there was yeah. some reason, Pombonit, I think, there was some reason it went 12 miles past Camperdown when it was established in yep. 1933, it would have been, or 1936. Yeah, yeah. Um, why did it yeah, go there? Yeah. Why didn't it go to Colac? Well, I forget what district think- Colac was in. If it, if it is Pombonite, then I think Pombonite was associated with the Camperdown District Football League, and they were affiliated with um, yes. Hampton League. And a lot of their juniors went and played with the senior club, which would have been Camperdown for them. Yep. Um, yeah. All right. And, and, and what, what newspapers are you, are you looking at? I mean, I imagine a lot of them don't survive now. What, what newspapers are you, are you, uh, have, have you been reading? So the main ones are the... Camperdown Chronicle, the Cobden Times, the Mortlake Dispatch, the Terrain Express, and then obviously the Warrnambool Standard. See some time-honoured mastheads there. How many of them are still? <laughs> how many of them still do exist? The Warrnambool Standard does, of course. The Warrnambool Standard does. Uh, I think they all sort of they've all worked together now. They all like the Mortlake Dispatch and the Terrain Express still exist, but they're almost working under the same. Um, Umbrella organisation, which is, I think, Western District newspapers or something like that. And I think. In very muted form, yes, yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure the Cobden Times, though. 
Okay. Yeah, they family all Swedish, but I think they're only like one week, one week, one issue a week papers these days. And in, that, in those days, the community newspapers just covered life in that area quite yep. vividly, and it mattered. I mean, you, you got your—that's where you got your news from, the local newspaper. Now you mentioned yeah. some of the, some of these terms which are important to you, to your understanding of footy and the times, or footy in the times. Can you give us an idea of some of these terms you're talking about? So, um, a lot of the a lot of the research I'm doing is looking into, um, I suppose, the how football um, impacted the community and sort of what. Um, how reliant the community was on the football and also how reliant football was on the community. So a lot of the times I'm finding at the moment that, especially in the Depression period, the um, the football clubs really had to advertise and promote themselves to the community to get that sort of support. Whereas I think today, in the modern time, it's more of a given that the country football clubs have that sort of local support. So I think that's the main... One of the main sort of factors is that, yeah, that's, uh, the football clubs, uh, yeah, really promote themselves and, that, and the press really helped promote that um, feeling to the clubs. Does, it, does that suggest football wasn't as central to local communities as we'd like to think it was in those days? That's the, that's the sort of, that's a little bit of a feeling I'm getting, but I think definitely was a massive social, social hub for the community and I think it was easily the most popular sport in the communities at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... So it wasn't just accepted that this is the life of the community. They had to actually fight for support. How would they fight for support? How would they promote themselves? So you'd often read in newspapers that um, before every game, the newspapers would really say stuff like um, uh, a, a large crowd is expected at this game or they'd sort of be saying... Because obviously, if they're, if they're claiming that there's going to be, a, or they're trying to promote that idea that there's going to be a large crowd, then obviously that wasn't sort of a given for a week-to-week thing. Whereas you sort of look um, at the VFL at the time, and they were sort of just drawing in crowds, and there wasn't that sort of um, necessary uh, necessity to promote the, promote the football as much. Yeah, well, the VFL actually strengthened during the depression, whereas. That's right, all, yeah. all, all small. I mean, that was the making of it in a way. Richmond have just won the flag. It was certainly the making of Richmond. Um, yeah. The fact that Richmond, Carlton, Collingwood were always up around the top in that late twenties, early thirties period, which is where the, which is where Richmond's massive support comes from, basically from that era. Mm. Um, but lesser comps did struggle. It's like all the resources went, all the interest went to the top, uh, and country yeah, right. and country. Um, and country competitions really did struggle. I mean, clubs didn't yeah. pay players and lost players. And um, yeah, so the other thing, the, mm. the clubs were all, um, especially in the in the country, they were all run on an amateur amateur basis, except for a coach, which usually received some sort of stipend for their um, yes. efforts. And there's a lot of coaches that were um, they'd advertise for coaches from the from the city and drawing. Um, yeah, that sort of professional professional coach. But then the rest of the players were drawn just from the district and they were yeah, amateurs and they just played for the, the love of the game, essentially. Was it accepted? Um, so, so so would 
big clubs recruit from the VFL, recruit a coach. Was that accepted or was that, um, I mean, this was a bit of an outlay. They would get like more than the weekly average weekly wage in many cases. Um, was that accepted or what was the reaction? Did it, did it actually happen in the area you're talking about? Did they get big name coaches or yeah, players yeah. Out of the, straight out of the VFL? So I think, um, obviously, you've, you've done your research with, uh, on Colin Watson and his, um, yes, his early days of <laughs> Did a lot of Colin coaching. Watson. Yes. So he, he, he was drawn, he was attracted back to um, South Warnable at one point and went on to coach at Cobden. But then another interesting case was uh, I didn't know he Tom Fitzmaurice. Okay. Yeah, he had, I think he spent yeah, one, year, one year at Cobden. Okay, so just, um, just should just fill in there. Colin Watson was originally from South Warrnambool, went to St Kilda, won a Brownlow medal, and was basically his fight to play for Maryborough in the Ballarat League was one of the things that generated the formation of the VCFL in 1927 because the country clubs wanted a voice yeah. against the VFL, uh, essentially. And Tom Fitzmaurice, he was a uh, Essendon Premiership player and then played for Geelong. And what happened to him? Yeah. He eventually came to Mortlake in 1929. Yep. And he was on a yeah fairly um, significant wage for the time. I think this is, this is obviously just pre, pre-depression, so I think he was on about seven pounds a week, Ooh. which is yeah fairly significant for the time, considering that the uh, the VFL was just about to introduce their um, cultural law, which, yeah. law, which I think restricted players to three pounds a week. So... If you wanted to come to the country, there was a bit more in it for players. But then, obviously, the depression um, sort of affected that. And I think during those, those depression years, the, the coaches in the country were only paid sort of three pounds or four pounds um, a week if they were lucky. And a lot of prime days, they got voluntary coaches to or honorary coaches to take on the take on that role because the clubs couldn't afford it. Just reading about him, Tom, Tom Fitzmaurice was a tall, athletic, much like a modern player, mm. actually, type. Very mobile competition yeah, yeah. player. Was he a bit of a rock star in um, in southwest Victoria? Um, he certainly drew a lot of attention. There's uh, there was an incident actually in 1929 when he uh, essentially king hit or there was accusations of a king hit against a Tarang opponent, um, and there was a big blue in the newspapers. So the Tarang Express and the Mortlake Dispatch uh, basically had a big debate flying between the papers saying that he was a scandal and that he was, uh, was it the most dastardly act they'd ever seen. And um, <laughs> But the terrain, they're more like sort of the stats were defending him and saying it was just football and if he was playing in Melbourne, this would just be normal normal sort of run-of-the-mill stuff. So Okay, that's what they do up definitely there. That sort of, right. Yeah, that sort of um, contestation around yeah what constitutes um, uh, appropriate football and what's what's how the game should be played and how the game was played, I suppose, is another area that I'm looking into. Okay, all right. Well, um, I mean, it was, there's always been this debate about how the game should be played. What, what was the feeling in the in the Western District at the time? So definitely in that uh, 1930s sort of period, the, um, that sort of uh, tradition of sort of gentlemanly and gentleman sporting spirit is definitely uh, fairly... Uh, at the time, yeah. but then you do have these incidents where players, um, yeah, do these um, unfe- commit unseemly conduct, and <laughs> they those are all sort of uh, yeah, terms that get thrown out occasionally from time to time. And 
there's obviously a lot of um, debate about whether um, the game's changing and the style of play is also interesting. But they hate that sort of uh, scrimmaging sort of play, but they appreciate the sort of open, fast-flowing, high-marking sort of contests. Does that reflect, I mean, I presume you're... Uh, is Rob Rob Hess is overseeing your um, thesis? Is, mm, that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. No, no, yeah. Rob's you know, number one in sports history in Australia. Just well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know, yeah, how, yeah. I don't know how you rank these things, but certainly Rob's been at the forefront <laughs> of sports history in Australia. Uh, yeah. Does he discuss newspaper? The fact that most newspapers writers would have been, well, I suppose, what we now call middle class compared to the bikes yeah. work, working as. Uh, you know, hired hands on farms and eking out an existence in the t- in the town of Mortlake or something. I mean, it's that's a very right, middle class yeah. values. Is play play as a gentleman. And, yeah, yeah, there's sort of old old British uh, sentiments. Of, yes. Yeah. Amateur fair fair play. Is it fair to say around Mortlake? I mean, a lot of old wealth around there uh, in those days as well, like. Um, no, a lot of the squatters settled around there yeah, yeah. in the well, almost a hundred years before that, but a long time. So there, some of those blokes might have gone off to Geelong Grammar and then to university, then come back to Mortlake and wrote yeah, basically right. a British tradition for the local papers. Is that am I drawing a long yeah. bow there, or that's somewhere? Uh, it's, it's not too far, too far from truth. Because obviously, it's interesting that um, the newspapers in the district didn't really report on the on the Melbourne football at all. But you'd always get, um, once a year, you'd get results of the head of the river and, um, like, old school sort of information uh-huh. about, <laughs> yeah. about football clubs and that sort of thing. So APS results, yep. APS results, yeah. But certainly, um, yeah, a lot of um, yeah people did go off to school in in the, um, yeah, in the city and came back and returned and jumped on the land and whatnot. How prominent was... You know, sons of squatters in in in, in footy in those days. Were, were there any, or was it just you know Catholic potato growers and and whatever? Or what, what was the makeup of the footy competitions? I suppose it depends on the area, doesn't it? But um, yeah, so can you speak it's, generally? it's hard to sort of um, yeah draw too many conclusions about the makeup of the team just through the newspapers because you get the team lineups and there's a lot of um, you can sort of look at the names and they. Some of the names look particularly Irish, and some of the names look um, fairly standard Anglo-Saxon. So that's your, yep. that's sort of your only clue as to the makeup of the teams. But certainly, in, um, I've noticed that the the Nurat team certainly had a lot of um, uh, like Cavanaghs and um, Canards and O'Keefe's and O'Connors and whatnot. So mm, that's sort of these are very Irish Catholic names, aren't they? Yeah, and then obviously in Port Ferry and Caroy, you've got massive Irish Catholic. Um, uh, communities as well. Yes, yeah. But yeah, it's hard to decipher between the between the towns. I mean, I'm, 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 I might be completely barking up the wrong tree here, but just your your own surname is Marshall, Nick. Now, is Alan, mm. I, I actually saw Alan Marshall's biography of Sydney Meyer today, the gay provider. So, it sort of um, was pointed out to me for it take me ages to. Outline yeah, why, yeah. but um, are you related? Wasn't Alan Marshall from down that way, or I can jump puddles so, yeah, Alan, about his time there? Was he, was he related? Or yeah, that's what, so. He Alan Marshall was yeah born and born and raised in uh, Newark. He was in Newark, 
but he's not, yeah, not not a relation to me. Oh, I have my my grandfather's name is coincidentally Alan Marshall as well, but yeah, no no relation. All right, I was uh, built me up there and let me down. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. All right, no worries. Well, um, well, and fair enough. What about the, you mentioned Mortlake? Mortlake. When there's a lot of, not a lot, but there were wealthy oh, camper down. There were wealthy squatters' families around there, or, or big grazing. Yeah, sure. it's, it's more graziers around Mortlake. Sort of terrains yeah. more dairy, isn't yeah, it? So, so, so yeah, more like. More like we're often referred to as the plainsmen in the in the papers. The so there was yeah, a lot of grazing graziers, but then definitely towards um, uh, terrain and um, camping and stuff. There's a lot more dairy because obviously and Cobden as well, dairy with their butter factory and whatnot. So yes, um, yeah, yeah. Um, a friend of mine wrote, wrote about playing footy at Panmure in a, a book I edited. Yeah. Uh, for Malarkey Publication, it was a footy town. Oh, Sean, I forget Sean's surname. Um, and he, he he wrote about, you know, if you're driving, there was a certain point at which the dairy farms became grazing farms. So if you're driving north yeah. from Pamua towards Mortlake, there was a, a certain hill or yeah. a certain point where the country was changed yeah. and it was a different country because they were grazing they were grazing properties from there on. So it was a, yeah, a, another yeah. world. Well, certainly, certainly Mortlake, Mortlake was a dominant um, wool uh, wool, in, wool area, a lot of sheep, uh, sheep farming in that area, and um, so did they. Did they survive uh, the depression better than say Tarang? Like, could they pay blokes like Tom Fitzmaurice more, or didn't didn't work like? Work it's like sort of it, from what I read in the newspapers at the time. It seemed like because um, obviously the Tarang newspapers were having a go at Mortlake, and I think a lot of the Mortlake people. There was a few letters to the editor from Mortlake um, spectators saying that obviously that. Uh, Terang must be jealous that we can afford to pay a coach of Tom Dix Morris's <laughs> caliber. <laughs> it got to that level. So, okay. so it does, yeah, some sort of yeah interesting comments like that come through occasionally, but um, yeah, certainly it was a pretty rare incident where they discussed in, in that sort of detail. Okay. Is there any incidents that... um? that stick in your mind? I mean, decades a long time. I presume there are... Or any trends that stick in it? I mean, trends must have... St- Brendan Ryan was the name of the poet from Pam Muir. Brendan's now a teacher in Geelong. Um, from a very large family who played uh, footy at Pam Muir over the years. Um, is there an incident you'd like to bring up? Or do you want to... Um, that's, I'm still, yeah, sort of partway through my sort of analysis of all the, all the articles that I've collected. And certainly that Fitzmaurice one was the most prominent one that's popped up um, today mm-hmm. in the, um, okay. yeah, the contestation between the two towns. But, we, we, mentioned um, the, we mentioned the fact that the, the background of some of the newspaper writers would be different to the people they're writing about, which suggests that going to yeah. the clubs or going to archival stuff will provide another um, approach for you or, or another or, or different another, findings. Another layer. Another layer, yeah, for yeah. sure. What, what else? What have you found in that sort of area? Sort of original material, like memoirs or... Docu- family documents or things like that. Well, yeah, memoirs and um, diaries and stuff are sort of diaries, bit, of course, bit of a, bit like the holy grail of um, historical sort of research because they're fairly fairly rare. Mm-hmm. But certainly the um, found any? Certainly the, the minutes. Sorry. Have you found any uh, memoirs or? Uh, I haven't come across any as yet. As a, yeah, haven't haven't uh, spoken to many of the football clubs um, just yet. Okay. Hopefully, 
over, over the summer. I'll get to touch base with a few of them. This takes a long time, but yes, okay. Well, you started to mention yeah. minutes from the clubs. The minutes from clubs definitely um, provide a bit of um, detail. And a lot of the minutes are actually published in the newspapers themselves as well. So you get a lot of their financial details and um, balance sheets yep. uh, through the newspaper as well. So that paints a fairly, um, I suppose, administrative picture of how the clubs are coping and if they're in debt or if they're um, able to carry on and that sort of thing. So they're fairly, um, yeah. Has anything surprised you so far? Or really pricked your interest that you must dig deeper? Uh, certainly, I was expecting there to be uh, a lot more in regards to... Uh, um, well, not, not necessarily, but the, the football clubs themselves... I'm going off in the tangent here, but um, mm-hmm. nothing that's really surprised me. Certainly the... the the flow of the depression comes out a little bit in the in the newspapers, but I'm surprised that some of the clubs did better than they were supposed to, and that they survived through that period and mm-hmm. they sort of come and go in waves. And, um, and then, obviously, towards the World Wars, there's a big big issue with clubs and um, travel, and um, a lot of the clubs then fall into recess because of the war, and so it's it's fairly. I haven't come across anything that's really surprised me yet, but no. certainly it's been less. Are you writing down year by year which clubs exist in which competitions? So therefore you can track which ones survive and which ones thrive or survive? Uh, which yeah, ones yeah. So I've got, um, yeah, so I keep track of the, the leagues and the, the clubs that are existing in each of the leagues um, from year to year. All right. And then... Well, say in 1934, how many... How many how many competitions would have been in that area? So for 1934, for example, I think there was certainly, obviously, the Hand League and then Camperdown District, the Mountain Durant Football League, and then further to the sort of north would have been the Caramut District League. Which, which, what was, what was the last the, one, sorry? The the Caramut, Caramut District League. Oh, Caramut League, had its so own league. Right, oh, yeah. Mm, the Caramut, Hexham, um, yeah, Wandu. All played in that league. What like second team played in that league? Yes, yeah. And then yeah, further to the further towards one where you've got the Pernham Pernham District League. Pernham and District League. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. There were district league. Basically, then, every area had their own district league throughout country Victoria. Yeah, keep going. What else? Yeah, was just, just about yeah. So and then certainly um and then yeah, further towards Warrnambool, they Warrnambool had their own sort of district league, but then um had Warrnambool and South Warrnambool playing in the major handed football league. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, Caroit and Port Ferry had their own district league competitions because at the time, Port Ferry and Caroit, I think 1934, they tried to come into the Hamden League but then failed and they were, mm-hmm. in, they were both in massive debt at the time and essentially they had to just disband their senior football club but oh. their junior football club in the district survived via their yeah, district league competitions. So did you say? Yeah, did you say singular club was Port Ferry and Caroy combined at one stage? No, no. So Port Ferry, no, no. So Port Ferry and Caroy, the yeah. separate clubs. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, they both their senior teams 
um, had to disband at one point or another. Okay. Because there's a Port um, Ferry District Footy League for well, until 1970, I think, or around that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but Port Ferry and Croyd both went into the Hampden League in about 1950, so it took... Yeah, yeah. It, it, it took until after the Second World War. So the, the setup of the VCFL at the time was that each district had one major league, and all then uh, all other um, affiliated leagues were district leagues. So you know there could be a dozen or ten. Sounds like about ten might be right. So in about in nineteen thirty three, I think there was thirteen districts throughout mm. Victoria and the River Arena. The River, there was a 1933, they actually started a district at Riverina. Yep. So there's 13 districts in that VCFL area. One of them was the Hamden district. And tell us about the formation of the Hamden League, because that wasn't formed until 1930, I think 30. it was. Yeah. Yep. So, what, what, why, so why was the Hamden League formed? So the Hamden League was a almost a... The Hamden League existed in another format earlier in the, um, in the century. After the war, they were... They played in what was called the, the Karangamite Shield against the those four teams. So it was Mortlake, Tarang, Cobden, and Camperdown played each other for probably ten years up until, or sorry, for about five years up until about nineteen twenty-five. So that, that was and a then four what run. they did was okay, yeah. four-run competition, and then they ended up joining up with um, the Western District Football League in about I think nineteen twenty-five, or it might have been slightly earlier than that. Yeah, but they were so that was with Croyd, Port Ferry, Hamilton, and the Warrnambool Clubs. Okay, and so then, that's a big area in those days to get from to get from Camperdown to Ham- Hamilton. Yeah, uh, I mean, in the back of a truck so, or, or uh, whatever, it would have taken hours actually. It would have, yeah. So it was they, I think they took advantage of the the train trains a fair bit back in that day. But certainly yes. um, by nineteen thirty, there was um, I think a lot of the, the eastern clubs, so Camperdown and Cobden, were finding that sort of travel. Too hard. A little bit difficult to, to cope with, especially because, um, yeah, milkers would have to get away early and then they'd have to get back and be milking in the dark and that sort of thing. So yep. they decided to break away from the Western District Football League. The, the four Eastern teams, or the old four, as they were called, yes. um, so Mortlake, Tyrone, Campion, Cobden, broke away from the Western District League and formed their own league, which was the Hand of Football League. The old four. Does, it, does anyone still refer to them as the old four? Uh, I haven't heard it in recently, recent times, but um, I know that in the papers they were sort of um, jibed a little bit for it, being the old four. Or, right. Initially, initially Mortlake, Tarang and Camperdown were keen to leave the Western District Football League, yeah. but Cobden wanted to remain, yeah. and the new the, the Waterball Standard referred to them as the, the Little Three. <laughs> the Little Three, and then, and then obviously Cobden... Um, Eventually came back over and they referred to the old four. Okay, so the little three became the old four. When did and the Warrnambool clubs, Warrnambool and South Warrnambool, they wanted in straight away, but they weren't allowed. What, what, what was the, what was the go there? So my understanding, I'm not 100 percent across this at the moment, but I think their they wanted their gates were a lot better uh, with the Eastern clubs, mm-hmm. and their gates in the Western District were a lot better than the other clubs in that league. Yeah. And they wanted to yeah, join up with the with the Camperdowns and the Drangs and Mortlake and Cobden because they'd have a more yeah, beneficial gates and more more revenue to, to work with. 
So it comes down to money again, doesn't it? It was, yeah. So I think that, that was that came back to that question about um, things that surprised me is that there's always a contestation about um, playing the game for the game's sake or playing the game for the revenue and that sort of business mentality. So there's mm. um, definitely, yeah, a bit of... People, people still derive. Uh, people here refer to the uh, AFL when they talk about industry. It really upsets a lot of people. But there's always been this aspect of industry, money in uh, in footy. Mm. When the VFL yep. was formed in 1897 as a financial breakaway in uh, in, in many yep. ways. Uh, anyway, um, so Warrnambool and South Warrnambool came in. When was that? 33, say. Um, 33. Yep. And they, so those six yeah. those those six teams played through the rest of the 30s. I think Colac came in after the World War with well with Croydon Port Ferry, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After I think 49, I think it was. And Coragulac actually. Yeah, Colac, Coragulac. Yep. All right. Um, now, what about uh, was it a hat? Did the Warrnambool clubs dominate? I don't know who won the premierships in those that eras. Who, who were the who were the powerful clubs from that era? So it sort of it went in it went in uh, waves. So initially, when it was just the fourteen competition, Cobden were prominent. They made I think four grand finals in and in the first four years, mm-hmm. and they won won two premierships. And Turingham like were the other two strong teams. Campbelltown struggled early on, yep. and then um, Waterville came on. Waterville South Waterville came in, and they were always they made finals. I think each year. And then Warrnambool from about 35 to the end of the 30s made every grand final. Did they? I think they won, won three and lost, maybe lost three. Mm-hmm. But then and South Warrnambool were always close. And then Campdown towards the end of the, the decade started being more prominent. I think they won their first premiership in 37 or 38. Okay, so a lot of them had a go. Up around the top, was there a cultural yeah, divide between? I mean, Warrnambool's a much larger regional town than the than the old four, um, well, the old four towns at least. Was there a cultural divide? Like, did people from Terang not like playing Warrnambool? I feel different to the the merchants from Warrnambool, or the uh, Warrnambool would have had some white collar players, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the main issue that the clubs, or one of the, one of the issues the clubs had with Warrnambool was their, the fact that they wanted to always have the finals in Warrnambool. Oh, right. But that often um, often meant that there was no ground, there was no neutral ground to play on. And yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's always a lot of debate about whether they were just, whether the league was just chasing, and again, going to, back to that industry sort of question of whether yeah. the club was the league chasing so, revenue so we'll- or if they wanted to play the game for the game's sake. So where was the handle of the league base? Where, where where was the administration? It sounds like I mean, if Warrnambool came in later and South Warrnambool, was it originally based in um, Tarang, say, or Cobden, or yeah, so yeah, always yeah, based in uh, Tarang, and I think also Campdown they had a few meetings, but prominently, uh, predominantly in Tarang, at the Wheatsheaf, I think was most right. there. And who was there? Was there a dominant player or two in the in the thirties? Uh, yeah, so a few names that spring to mind. So all the all the coaches that get recruited to the clubs always seem to seem to dominate the headlines or dominate the articles. Well, they're big names. That's um, uh, that's the uh, nature of celebrity, even then. Yes, that's it. Yeah, um, but probably one of the local names that um, was fairly dominant was the guy Cyril Cyril Bateman. Cyril Bateman. He played okay. for 
he played for uh, Cobden initially, yes, and then went on to coach Campound for a few years, and then he ended up kicking 21 goals in one game against Cobden in I think 1938 or something, and that I think that's still a record to the day to that to this day. Has he got a medal named after him or anything, or a goalkeeper? Uh, no, I don't think so. What, what about Cyril? What was he? Was he a farmer or was he a milk bar owner? Or what, what did Cyril Bateman do? Uh, I don't, re- don't recall. I haven't um, gone too too far into his personal life at okay. this stage, but um, right. I think he's a farmer, dairy farmer. What about some of these district comps? Who were the who were the dominant? Was there any club sticking your mind as um, being dominant in those comps? And any numbers? Uh, trying to think. That the district comps were pretty interesting because they they were obviously the junior junior teams in the in the districts and they supplied the senior clubs with a lot of their with yeah. their junior players. Yes. Right and right. so often even if they were if they were good they um, went up into the senior ranks and that meant that the competition was fairly balanced because clubs were never or Clubs often have to share their share their players, so share their players with the senior clubs. So there was a fairly even competition at that second tier level. Yeah, and there's permit system permit systems where players could go for two games originally. Later it was six games. Uh, yeah. Then they could go back to the, that that system remained in place for decades actually. Mm, uh, they had the sort of one one day permits and stuff as well with the, the one day. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not sure. I haven't quite looked at how that works, but yeah. yeah Okay, did you come across tonight? Look, my, my surname's Daffy. Mm. Can I just be a bit indulgent? Um, <laughs> a lot of Daffy's around Camper and Colac. My, my name's spelled E-Y, but the Daffy's down that way have yeah. got no E, but that's the original spelling of the name. There's a bit of a... I'm from the uh, Splinter Group, which stuck an E in their name yeah. in the late 19th yeah. century. Tell us about the Daffy's around... I mean, Jack Daffy was a prominent Warnable official later on, but... Did any daffies come up in your in your uh, in your travels? I haven't spotted any yet that come to mind, but I'm obviously not looking close enough. Okay, fair enough. Well, so so you're you're 18 months in. Uh, how yep. long does this go for for Nick? Uh, so it's a three year um, three year uh, PhD, mm. but um, and yeah, the aim is to get it done in three. But there's sort of Okay. Occasionally, a bit of learning seeing that, but yeah, definitely. So, get done in three. What have you got? What are you to do now? You you um, you mentioned that you're just starting to contact the clubs. Uh, what what else is there to do? Um, so definitely, so still working through. I've still got a large collection of articles that I'm working through. So that that was about two months of work at the state library collecting articles, and I'm just going through and doing a bit of a closer read of those, and that'll be that'll probably take me through until probably end of November. Yep. And then, um, yeah, then hopefully over summer I'll get to touch base with a few more clubs and touch base with the historical societies again and see if they've come across anything interesting for me to have a look at. All right. So what, do you, do you reach a point where you say, right, now I've just got to sit down and write? I know that feeling very so, yeah, well so because you could research for years, but eventually you've got to... Yeah, so you try and, do, try and do a little bit of writing as you go, but um, the aim is to have all of next year and a bit of the year following to... To write away, and that'll give you plenty of time to get it all done. Hopefully. Okay. All right. Now, well, perhaps I should have asked this at the beginning, but why have you chosen to write uh, your thesis, your, your PhD thesis, on on country footy? I think generally the 
country country football history is um, a really interesting space to um, take football history because obviously the metropolitan leagues and the the VFL and AFL have been almost done to death a little bit, and I think the the country football leagues in all those stories are a little bit forgotten and the sort of context and the social history of the country football leagues is a little bit um, underplayed a little bit, and so. Um, certainly, there's a lot of really good local history books that have been done about country football leagues, and they tend to sort of um, just sort of skim the surface of um, the 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 clubs or the leagues that they're talking about, and they give you all really um, give you all the scores and the best players and that sort of thing, but they don't sort of touch base in, on the sort of context and the social um, social and cultural. Um, Structures surrounding that club, and so no, I'm hoping no, that, sort of that's true. That yeah. level, get yeah, that next next level down, and um, sort of understand. So it's a it's a matter of what what people meant. Okay, so it's a matter of great interest. So we, and so when you finish your PhD, what what will you then do? You'll you'll be a doctor of, of what, and what does that? What do you think you'll do? Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good question. Um, so I'll be I'll be just a I'll, have a little bit of expertise, I suppose, in um, sports history and certainly country country war history, and hopefully I'll be able to either go on with um, that sort of academic sort of pathway and keep on researching in other areas of hopefully country football in Victoria and then maybe further across to other regions of Australia and, um, yeah, take that sort of pathway. But other than that, um, yeah, still keeping my options open. Yeah, you might you might continue as an historian, or you're not sure. What yeah. will you be? A doctor of? You won't be a doctor of divinity. When you get a PhD in history, what are you? A doctor of what? I think it's just a doctor of philosophy. Philosophy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then no. obviously I'll be yeah a historian or a sports historian. Okay. And that sort of. I and just before I go, some clubs are better at others at keeping their history and uh, and leagues as well. The amount of yep. clubs that just chucked all their historical documents in the tip, or had these rogue fires go yep. through the, all their documents, is extraordinary. Have you found some yep. clubs that have just done a great job of preserving their history? And if so, which ones? Or people? Uh, people? I've noticed that yeah, there's, there's often you often come across people that um, yeah really really understand the the significance of the material they're holding on to, and they um, keep it pretty well preserved. But um, to date, I I've found that yeah, most clubs have only sort of got recent, recent history documents from sort of like the 80s or 90s. And hmm. if you want to track down things from the 30s and stuff, you have to sort of find the right people to speak to because otherwise, yeah, it's been been lost or yeah, not held on to. But certainly, I'll find out a bit more once I yeah, speak to a few more clubs. What's been your most exciting find in that region, in that in that area? Like you found a document or a, a person who's given you access to something rather than you thought, oh, this is good. Definitely the the historical society. So I visited uh, Mortlake Historical Society. Um, yeah. They've got a great great little group of people and a little a little space there where they've got documents and they've got a collection of the they've got the whole collection of the newspapers there and yeah, you speak to people there and they've got yeah photos or um, little mementos from clubs. I think one of the funny ones is the um, the end of year dinners. They would always have a at Mortlake. They'd have a dinner at the Max Hotel. Max Hotel. Yeah. And they'd be um, and they'd have a, a menu and a program for the evening. And I know certainly in their premiership years, they were a really big 
really big event and they'd have everyone would get a little menu and everyone would sign each other's menus and you'd have so I've come across a few at the at the historical society where they've I've turned over the back and there's just about probably about fifty or sixty signatures of either players or officials or oh, really? just members of the club. So this yeah. is the footy so, the footy club would have an interview dinner at the Mac, at the Mac Hotel. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, their president, Mortlake's president during the thirties was a bloke by the name of DJ Griffin. Griffin, yeah, right. And he he was the public in at Max Hotel. Right. I'm aware. Yep. And he would yeah host a host a dinner each year to celebrate the season or commiserate the the loss or whatever. And create a bit of commerce at the pub as well. That's a smart thing. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Sorry. right. Um, very good. And just before I go, is is, is Calora, I keep saying Calora. It's Calora. Has Calora produced any AFL players? So who went to Fitzroy or? I can't, uh, I can't think of any. No, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, not even sure if in recent recent times, but no, not that I'm aware of. I know that Terrain Warlake's had a few recently that have played, uh, gone on to play at AFL level. So I think Louis Taylor played all his junior footy at Terrain Warlake and. Yeah. Um, no. Well, Cobden's it's almost fashionable at the moment. Cobden. Yeah, Cobden obviously. Yeah, Merritt boys and Cunnington. Um, well, yeah, Zach and Jackson Merritt. Um, Zach and Jackson. Uh, ben Cunnington and Gary Rowan, of course, mm-hmm. and now Sean Gary Darcy. Rowan, yeah. Sean Darcy, actually, the yeah, Fremantle Ruckman. He's, I think, he's a Cobden boy That's as well. Right, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. They're, they're producing stack supplies in Cobden. Anyway, it, we'll it just. Must be the milk. <laughs> must be. All right, Nick Marshall, I've just kept you talking. Uh, so, one more question before I go. Are you the first person to do yeah. your PhD on country footy that you know of? Are there, are there any other uh, theses around that I should be looking at? There, there's one by um, a fellow by the name of Dylan. I can't remember his first initials now, but he oh. wrote uh, something on the Riverina. Oh, mate. R.A. Gillett. He'll be, he'll, be, yeah, uh, right. he'll be listening to this podcast. He's my main correspondent. Gives me more feedback. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. Gives me more feedback than anyone. I know more about Riverina footy than uh, probably any Victorian yeah. should ever know. Uh, so he was he was he was the first thesis that I read on on the topic. So he's a bit of a bit of inspiration, I suppose, for me. Rockets a guru. Well, I mean, it, it is it is a groundbreaking thesis, and that the studies, the stuff that emerged from that thesis, it's very readable. I highly recommend, yeah, and you can get it through this. Well, the New South Wales State Library would have to be. Or you can just yeah, email yeah. me and I'll um, I'll forge up the PDFs of it, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Would you turn yours yeah, into a book? Uh, Rockets turn these into a booklet, but not not uh, not a book. Not a book. Um, uh, oh, it depends, depends if it's any good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it sounds great to me, so I'm sure it will be good, Nick. And, uh, yeah. And you've got a very active and wonderful sports history department there at VU, so you're in good hands as well. Yeah. So, Nick Marshall, uh, just sorry, before I go, at this time I normally say, I remind listeners, uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes, to please press subscribe and the interviews will drop into your inbox each week. This is the last interview for 2017, so there'll be no more this week, but if you do subscribe on iTunes looking ahead to next year, and it makes it easy to uh, go back through past interviews, if you just go back through the iTunes feed, that's probably the easiest way to do it. So I, I encourage you to do that, even if it is this last week. Uh, and thanks for being my last interview, Nick Marshall, on PD Footy this year. Good luck with your thesis. And 
in the months, well, in the 18 months ahead. And uh, thanks again. Thanks, Nick Marshall. Cheers, thank you very much for having me.